When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today, we're here to talk about the class that started it all. Wizards! Pew pew? Wizards are the classic magic users not just of D, but of all games it starts and ends at the wizard so now we finally get to talk into how those actually work in D fifth edition so the lore of wizards i'll actually start with this this time because who oh boy is the mechanic side kind of long so Wizards are the learned magic users. They study the, you know, layout of the universe itself and figure out how magic works. And through that study, advance their own knowledge and power in the arcane. So how you choose to do that in games is as always, very much reliant on the Dungeon Master. Whether you want there to be massive wizard academies that turn out hundreds of wannabe wizard students, or if you want to have a much more modest, you know, apprentice-based learning system where it is just the master and apprentice studying magic, is very much something to think about. So I talk a lot about thinking about the world-building side of things. And I'm not going to stop, so here we go. Magic in general, how much magic is in your world needs to be thought about because so many of the spells accessible to magic users, and wizards in particular, can have massive repercussions in the world. So if you have... Wizards who have, a, you know, the spell fabricate to magically create things. And if you have wizard academies churning out students, then that would very much affect what kind of other laborers would not be able to exist because it would be done via magic. So many spells like that would affect how certain trades and therefore people work in the world. And for that reason, more than anything else, think about how much magic is in your world and especially how much of your magic users are wizards. And not just in terms of their ability to learn magic, but how they use said magic. Are wizards the hermits who just study the universe in isolation, or is it you know, shared knowledge with great libraries that are ever pushing to grow more knowledgeable and powerful. Because how 
that affects things is enormous. So if you have wizard college with, with libraries, then any person who has an intelligence of 13 is eligible to become a wizard according to the multi-classing rules. Whether you start as a class with stats below that for your commoners is a whole separate topic to be debated and is worth debate. So side note for that later. Uh, later episode, I mean, not later today. Anyway, in theory, if you go by the side of the multi-classing rules of anyone with a 13, then thinking about just the mathematical distribution of stats very much limits how many of the population could potentially become a wizard in the first place, let alone how many have the will or circumstantial availability to do so. So demographics in general is a subject that I'm quite fond of in D&D and is another one that I will likely talk more about at some point in the future. But for magic and wizards especially, think about how many of them are in your world and how many of them are shaping your world. So with that being said, let's dive into the mechanics side of things. Uh, before I start my full read on that, though, I will mention wizards have more subclasses than anyone. There are 10 in the books, not including Unearthed Arcana, which has two more. So I am not going to read through all of the subclasses. I'm going to focus in on abilities that I feel to be underappreciated just to bring awareness to them. If you want to fully read about all of the wizard subclasses available, then that is available online, and I will not take up 90 minutes of your time to read through all of them. I will just point out ones that I find to be of particular interest. So with all that being said, here we go. So wizards are a full spellcasting class, of course, that eventually has the ability to cast ninth level magic once they reach level 17. So wizards have full access to spells. They can cast the most powerful of spells, and the spell list available to wizard characters is the largest in the game. There are a rare few spells that a wizard cannot cast, such as True Resurrection, that is limited to other classes. But for the most part, well, not for the most part, but factually, wizards have in total more spells than any other class. So they are an intelligence-based class. So the more a wizard has in the intelligence stat, the more spells that they have access to. Because unlike some classes that have a specific number of spells that they know, such as the sorcerer, then a wizard has a number of spells equal to their wizard level plus their intelligence modifier. So a smarter wizard literally will have more spells available to them. However, the way that a wizard's spell list works is also different from any other class. So for them, instead of having either complete access 
two spells and picking them day by day, such as a druid or a cleric have. Wizards have a spell book, and throughout their adventuring life, they collect any number of spells, but have to pay gold to transcribe it into their spell book. And there is no limit on how many spells a wizard can have in their spell book at all, as long as they have sufficient gold and time to inscribe the spells. Uh, one detail of that also that is lesser known, in the event of a wizard finding a spell scroll, a wizard has the ability to scribe that scrolled spell into their spell book as well. So if a wizard finds an enemy spell book or buys any spell scroll, those are all accessible for the wizard to copy down into their spell book. So when they level up, a wizard gets two spells that they figured out how to use in that time, like through study or some new understanding of the universe is how it's described. So they get two spells for free each level up and then can find and add other spells that they find. So that's the spell book. So that is the total number of spells that your wizard knows. Now, there's a separation of the spells that a wizard knows and the spells that a wizard has prepared. So this is the line of what spells a wizard can cast day to day. So a wizard is able to prepare a number of spells equal to their wizard level plus their intelligence modifier. So if you've got a level 10 wizard with an 18 intelligence, then wizard level 10 plus intelligence modifier, which would be a plus four for an 18 intelligence wizard, so then they would be able to prepare 14 spells at the start of each day when they finish a long rest. So that is very important. So a wizard can know any number of spells that they have the golden time to put in their book, but they can only prepare their level plus intelligence modifier. So at the start of each day, the wizard has to choose what spells it thinks will be useful for the day ahead of them. One other very useful thing to know that honestly a lot of people may not know about. So ritual casting is the ability for certain spells that have the ritual tag, such as detect magic or identify, to be cast with an additional casting time of 10 minutes and in exchange not expend a spell slot. So if you have the time out of combat, because in combat that would be 100 rounds, which wouldn't go so well, so out of combat is where this is useful, but you can use this to cast certain spells without having to use up your finite spell slots. And this is particularly useful for something like identify to let you identify a magic item or potentially cursed item without using a spell slot. But that's ritual casting in general. Wizards have an additional useful thing, which is that 
a wizard is able to cast a ritual spell as a ritual, even if they don't have that spell prepared that day. So a wizard can prepare spells that are not rituals, but still use their other ritual spells, as long as they have that additional 10 minutes to cast said spell. So especially for things like identify, detect magic, uh, what other useful rituals? Uh, Tensor's floating disc, I think, unseen servant. There are a lot of very useful utility spells that can therefore be used as a ritual without expending spell slots, even if not prepared. And that is a rather convenient quality of life bonus to being a wizard. Uh, one very important thing. I mentioned the spell book. However, a wizard who loses their book is in trouble because they cannot change the spells that they have prepared if they do not have their spellbook any longer. So destroying a wizard's spellbook would be a horrible thing to do to someone. Nathan, I can imagine you writing a note right now. No, I'm not. <laughs> scribble, scribble. <laughs> anyway, so that also is a thing to keep in mind for the world-building side of things, that if you have you know, evil player characters in your campaign, then threatening a wizard's spellbook ought to be a very effective way to gain compliance. So if you have the law in a particularly lawful community, be that, you know, a wizard's spellbook is seized should a wizard get arrested, that is awful. And that also is an important thing for wizard characters to keep in mind, is that if you can get the time to do it, having a backup copy of your spellbook made and kept safe, potentially somewhere other than where you are, is something that is worth thinking about because a wizard without their spellbook is in trouble. All right, moving on. So also still at first level, wizards have an ability called Arcane Recovery, which lets them regain some magical energy by studying their spellbook. So again, need to have the spellbook. Anyway, once per day, when you finish a short rest, you can choose expended spell slots to recover. The spell slots can have a combined level that is equal to or less than half your wizard level rounded up, and none of the slots can be 6th level or higher. That is a fantastic ability. So if you have, you know, let's say 8th uh, level wizard, then they would be able to regain 4 spell slots worth of slots in some combination. And this is one aspect of it that is also very important. So you can get up to four levels of slots. It is up to the wizard to decide, do they want a single fourth level spell slot or four first level spell slots or two second level or a second level and two first level. Anything that adds up to half their level. So that flexibility can very much help wizard characters. So if, let's say, you're a wizard who gets into fights a lot, and you use up all your first level spell slots using shield, which is a fantastic spell. So get that plus five to AC, but you run out of first level spell slots and you don't 
necessarily want to waste your higher level spell slots on that spell, even though it is still quite good. So using this ability, you can then get back more first level spell slots very easily. Or if you do have a higher level spell that you want to get back, then as you level up, you can still get back up to fifth level spell slots with this ability. And then even with that limitation of no spell slots of 6th level or higher. So that would still mean that, you know, a 20th level wizard can get 10 levels of spell slots back. So that can be, you know, a 5th level spell and five third, you know, five first level spell slots. So that flexibility in Arcane Recovery, you get it at first level, but that is useful forever. Alrighty then. So at second level, this is where wizards get to pick their subclass, which is referred to as their arcane tradition. So as usual, I'm just going to skip that for now, because there's really not a whole lot of actually uh, general wizard abilities. So we'll get back to that shortly. At fourth level, it's the usual ability score improvement for 8, 12, 16, and 19th level. And then it is a massive skip they don't get another ability that is not subclass related until level 18. But I will say that 18th level ability they get is amazing. Spell mastery. You've achieved such mastery over certain spells that you can cast them at will. Choose a first level wizard spell and a second level wizard spell that are in your spell book. You can cast those spells at their lowest level without expending a spell slot when you have them prepared. If you want to cast either spell at a higher level, you must expend a spell slot as normal. By spending eight hours in study, you can exchange one or both spells you chose for different spells of the same level. Yowza. So there are a lot of very, very useful spells that are first and second level. So I mentioned shield earlier. That is a spell that is never not helpful. Plus five to your AC for an entire round as a reaction. And given the fact that a wizard is so very squishy, that is incredibly important to have that little extra defense available. So with spell mastery, you could choose to use shield without ever expending spell slots anymore. And then on the other side, you also get a level two spell. So you can get something like Arcanist's Magic Aura, which could let you hide whether something is a magic item. And then you can put all kinds of protections on your own items. Or a less moral person could do the opposite effect and make a non-magical item feel magical to those inspecting such things. So there is a lot of potentially interesting use or you could choose an illusion spell for example that you can then cast at will and there are a lot of fun things that you can do even with just a first or second level spell that you don't have to worry about your spell slot limitations anymore there is fun to be had there anyway moving on for that 20th level capstone ability signature spells you gain mastery over two 
powerful spells and can cast them with little effort. Choose two third-level wizard spells in your spellbook as your signature spells. You always have these spells prepared. They don't count against the number of spells you have prepared. And you can cast each of them once at third level without expending a spell slot. When you do so, you can't do so again until you finish a short or long rest. If you want to cast the spell at higher level, you must expend the spell slot as normal. That is also fantastic. So, third level spell, I think regular listeners can guess where I'm going with this. Fireball is a third level spell that is on the wizard spell list. So with this ability, that spell would no longer count against their number of spells prepared, which would let them also have something else available. And once per short rest can cast the spell without expending a spell slot. That is great. So another fun option that comes to mind, uh, non-detection to help hide you from divination lasts for eight hours. So that is another one that could potentially be very useful. There are any number of spells that can be immensely valuable with that feature. So that is a very, very good capstone ability. And the fact that it does let you cast without spell slot with a short rest recharge is immensely valuable. So again, using non-detection as an example, that means that they could cast it in the morning, have a short rest in the early afternoon, cast it again, and then do it again before bed. And so a wizard with that as one of their chosen two would then be pretty much permanently undetectable by divination magic. So that would be a very, very useful thing, to say the least. Alrighty then, so moving on now to the subclasses, because that's it in terms of the actual wizard abilities. The wizards in general don't have a lot of abilities. They primarily just rely on having a lot of spells available, and they do, and they're good at that. Oh, actually, I just realized I accidentally skipped over a section entirely. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago that shield helps because wizards are squishy, but I forgot to talk about that at the start, as I normally do. Excuse me. Wizards have a d6 as their hit die, which means that much like the sorcerer, they are the lowest and squishiest hit point total class in the game. So they do not have a lot of defense, which is also hurt by the fact that they have no armor as well. They have absolutely no armor proficiency. Not light armor, not shields, nada. And even moving on from that in terms of weapons, they don't get a lot. They only have proficiency with daggers, darts, slings, quarterstaffs, and light crossbows. And that's it. So a wizard is incredibly squishy and really really should not be in melee combat in general unless you have very specific buff spells to make you a little bit more safe but for the most part keep a wizard out of melee they don't belong there and they get to pick two skills to start from amongst arcana history insight investigation medicine and religion so makes sense so insight aside the intelligence-based skills Alrighty then now moving on to the subclasses so there are a lot of them so it would take 
an additional hour at the least if I were to truly read through all of it. So I'm not going to. I'm just going to go through what I find interesting. But going through the full list of them. Uh, so let's see here. Blade singing. School of abjuration. School of conjuration. School of divination. School of enchantment. School of evocation. School of illusion. School of necromancy. School of transmutation. And war magic. That's a long list. So let's go ahead and just start. So blade singing is technically supposed to be elves only, according to the books. But it also does note that DMs can do whatever the hell they want. And they have that option. So basically, a blade singing wizard is someone who is meant to have some martial ability, as well as their use of magic. So that's really all that that one is, is combining a little bit more of a little bit of melee as well as their magic. So that's all I'm really going to say about that one. Abjuration is kind of the protection subclass, for lack of a better word. So actually, one thing that I will also mention. So anything that I listed that says school of blah, 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 has one feature that spells of that school of magic, because all of those are named because that is a category of spells. So anything of those, abjuration, conjuration, all that stuff, anytime that a wizard of that school copies a spell of that school into their spell book, the gold and time are cut in half to copy that into your spell book. So if you are a character that knows that they have a particular fondness for one of the schools of magic, it is very much worth it just for the time and gold saved to take that particular subclass. So if you are fond of, you know, conjuration or transmutation and plan to take a lot of those spells, then put seriously serious thought into choosing that school just for that reason, let even taking aside the other abilities. Anyway, so abjuration, uh, have time and gold to copy abjuration spells. You get a arcane ward to help protect yourself. And then as you level up to also protect allies. And one thing that I will mention in a little more detail for the abjuration school at 10th level, they have an ability called improved abjuration, which lets you make an ability check as part of casting an abjuration spell that or sorry, it lets you add your proficiency bonus to spells that require an ability check in the Abjuration School. So spell magic and counterspell are really the two where that's particularly relevant. So normally for counterspell and dispel magic, you might need to roll to see if you are successfully able to dispel or counter the spell. So adding your proficiency bonus to that so at that level, we'll let you add an additional four to six or so to those rolls, which is a massive boost to really help you successfully counter or dispel. All right, on to Conjuration. So Conjuration is one that I quite enjoy. So at second level, besides the 
uh, halved time and gold thing, they also get an ability called Minor Conjuration, which allows you, without a spell slot, to conjure an inanimate object in your hand or on the ground in an unoccupied space that you can see within 10 feet of you. Object to me no larger than three feet on a side and weigh no more than 10 pounds. And it has to be a non-magical object that uh, its form must be that of a non-magical object that you have seen. Object is visibly magical, radiating dim light out to five feet. It lasts for an hour until you use the feature again, or if it takes or deals any damage. And the reason I'm focusing on this is that it is my favorite type of D&D feature in that it is 100% based on the player's creativity in how useful this ability is. So the ability to just have a three-foot sized object can be very useful. So I imagine a creative player might use this, you know, in combination with prestidigitation to give themselves a small bathtub, for example, or you can use it to just make a rock and then chuck it at somebody and then have it disappear. There is no limit on the object on the object except for the size and weight. So also one very important thing to note about it is that you can use your action to conjure. It does not mention that there is any kind of somatic or verbal component. So you could technically use this to just conjure a 10 foot, you know, mini anvil over someone's head within 10 feet. And there's nothing that signifies that you are the one who did it. And that leads to all kinds of potential shenanigans. So like I said, it is only limited by the creativity of its user. And that is always something that I enjoy. And then moving on in the Conjuration School, uh, they get a option to teleport. But more importantly, once they get up to level 10, your concentration for a Conjuration spell cannot be broken as a result of taking damage. So the ability to safely cast concentration conjuration spells is a very useful and potentially underestimated ability. So moving on, School of Divination. This is another one that I do feel to be very much underestimated. And even at a very low level is where I'll honestly be focusing more because their second level ability, as soon as they pick the subclass, is amazing. Portent. When you finish a long rest, roll two d20s and record the numbers rolled. You can replace any attack roll, saving throw, or ability check made by you or a creature that you can see with one of these foretelling rolls. You must choose to do so before the roll, and you can replace a roll in this way only once per turn. Each foretelling can only be used once. When you finish a long rest, you lose any unused foretelling rolls. That is another incredible potential ability. So you can roll twice at the start of the day, and you just have two numbers. So let's say that you've got, you know, one good and one bad. So you have a four and a 17. The fact that it can be any 
attack roll saving throw or ability check made by you or a creature that you can see and it does not say friendly or enemy so any creature that you can see so it doesn't have a range it doesn't have any kind of limit on what the creature is just if you can see them then you can use this ability so you can choose if you have an enemy who's down to like two hit points and there's a boss that is about to attack them you can use this ability to make that boss creature's attack roll be a four so this can very very much help save an ally or your own life or you could use it to let's say that you do actually roll a 20 as one of your two rolls if you've got a paladin in the party, you could give them a guaranteed crit and then have them smite the hell out of something. You could use these rolls to potentially be used for an ability check where you know, oh crap, you know, we've got a dwarf in plate mail who's really, really crappy at stealth. Let me use that 17 for their stealth check when we really need to sneak by this place. It is another of those abilities that is simple-ish on paper, but immensely valuable depending on how it gets used and considering the fact that you get this at second level that is a fantastic ability and another one that i would add to the my ever-growing list of very useful potential multi-classes if you just take two levels of wizard to get that ability that is the kind of thing that could be helpful for any character and let's see so moving on they get also divination uh, when they cast a divination spell it's considered to be a lower level spell slot used for it which is nice oh another fun one so also divination at 10th level yeah i don't know why divination doesn't get played more they've got really good abilities anyway but 10th level third eye use your action to increase your powers of perception choose one of the following benefits which lasts until you're incapacitated or take a short or long rest you can't use the feature again until you finish a short or long rest gain dark vision out to 60 feet or see into the ethereal plane within 60 feet of you or comprehend or sorry uh, greater comprehension you can read any language and finally see invisibility you can see invisible creatures and objects within 10 feet of you that are within line of sight so any of those are real useful abilities and the fact that you can change them out with just a short rest is fantastic so if you're a character that doesn't have dark vision from your race, then you can get it with this ability. Or you can see invisible creatures near you, which is helpful. Read and language is very useful for someone who might, you know, need to decode an enemy spellbook, perhaps. So that is a nice additional flexible ability. And uh, their last ability is pretty simple, greater portent. You get to roll 3d20 instead of 2 at the start of the day. So, yeah, Divination is another one that I'm quite fond of and really ought to get played more. Anyway, Enchantment is up next. So their whole thing is about charming. So everything that they do is kind of just geared around tweaking and trying to make other creatures not harm you, to prevent them from attacking you or to you know alter memories later on, which is a cool ability, but... I'm just, in general, not a big fan of mind control, so that's all I'm going to say on that one for now. Evocation. 
So that is the magic of Kaboom. That is all of, you know, the freeze, blow up, all of the elemental type Kabooms. So it really just is kind of summed up with that. However, oddly enough, I don't actually see as many of these played as I would really expect, considering the fact that they really are quite useful class features granted by this one. But I think just because who the hell knows the word evocation that a lot of people just skip over and not realizing, oh, this is the blasty one. Awesome. So keep that in mind. Anyway, all of their abilities just are kind of geared around either making your attack spells more damaging or actually making it so that your allies don't get harmed as much by your damage spells. So pr trying to protect an ally inside your fireball is useful because otherwise that would hurt a lot. All right, on to the School of Illusion. This one, I would say, is probably my number one favorite because illusion magic in general is geared to creativity and using magic in creative ways is you know no surprise to regular listeners something i'm very much fond of so even as soon as you get it at second level it's a very minor ability that it grants you but one that i'm quite fond of also improved minor illusion when you cast minor illusion you can create both a sound and an image with a single casting of the spell so considering that Minor Illusion is a cantrip that you can just cast as often as you want, well, you know, actions aside, the ability to just get both sound and image means that as soon as they're level two, an Illusion Wizard can just cast a lot of illusions just based on their creativity, which is always fun. And their sixth level ability is whenever you cast an illusion spell with a duration of a minute or longer, you can use your action to change the nature of the illusion, provided that you can see the illusion. So the ability to change your illusions to make it more obvious, or sorry, less obvious that it is an illusion very useful. Illusory self, create an illusionary duplicate of yourself as a reaction to danger. So when the creature makes an attack roll, use your reaction and the attack automatically misses you and then use it again after a short or long rest. So again, anything that creates an automatic miss is absolutely fantastic. And because of the fact that specific meets general in terms of D&D rules, even though a critical hit is normally an automatic hit, it still has to actually hit you. So this would be one of the rare abilities that instead of just negating a crit to a regular hit like some things do, this would just flat out cause a critical hit to miss, potentially. So that is very much a useful ability. So this last ability at level 14 is where I truly just come into my love for illusion. So this I'm going to go on a tangent after I read the ability. Illusory reality. 
By 14th level, you've learned the secret of weaving shadow magic into your illusions to give them a semi-reality. When you cast an illusion of first level or higher, you can choose one inanimate, non-magical object that's part of the illusion and make that object real. You can do this on your turn as a bonus action while the spell is ongoing. The object remains real for one minute. For example, you can create an illusion of a bridge over a chasm and then make it real long enough for your allies to cross. The object can't deal damage or otherwise directly harm anyone. That is absolutely incredible just on its own right. The fact of making an object temporarily real is incredible and absolutely geared towards creativity. However, it is enhanced by the ability we described earlier. So the general wizard ability of, uh, what was it called? Uh, Spell mastery. So that was the 18th level ability of wizards. So to choose a first level and second level spell to be cast without a spell slot. So if a school of illusion wizard chooses a first or second level illusion spell, and then that in combination with illusory reality allows you to create an Escher-like wizard tower where reality is whatever the fuck you want it to be. So you can have there be a door that is only a door when you want it to be a door. Or you could have there be, you know, a ladder that you climb up, but then it just vanishes because it's no longer real. So it is only limited by the caster's imagination. So that, especially with the addition of the 18th level ability, pushes that up to make that absolutely my favorite one. All right, School of Necromancy, pretty much what it says on the tin. You get a bunch of boosts to necromant to necromantic spells. You get Animate Dead. Uh, you get Resistance to Necrotic Damage later on. And at 14, you get to Command Undead. So a lot of cool abilities, but nothing particularly standout or underappreciated. It's just generally accepted. That's cool. All right. Moving on to the school of transmutation. So that is transfiguration by Harry Potter talk. It is the magic of turning something into something else. And this is another one that I quite enjoy as its ability at second level, minor alchemy. When you select the school, you can temporarily alter the physical properties of one non-magical object, changing it from one substance into another. Uh, you perform a procedure on an object, blah, 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 wood, stone, iron, copper, or silver, transforming it into a different one of those materials. For 10 minutes, Oh, sorry, for each 10 minutes you spend performing the procedure, you can transform up to one cubic foot of material. After one hour, or until you lose your concentration, the material reverts to its original substance. So this is another one that can very much be creativity-based. So this could be used to say, you know, going back to the bridge example that was used for illusions, you can have there be a, you know, particularly weak wood that you transform into stone long enough for your party to cross over a treacherous ravine. And then if someone's chasing behind you, you can then just allow it to turn back by ending your concentration. And then it would turn back to normal and shatter. So another just fun, creative one. 
but slightly less so than Illusion in my admittedly biased opinion. However, their sixth level ability is amazing. Transmuter's Stone. Uh, someone's either a history or Harry Potter fan in terms of this, because that sounds a whole lot like a philosopher's stone. Anyway, sixth level, you can spend eight hours creating a transmuter's stone that stores transmutation magic. You can benefit from the stone yourself or give it to another creature. A creature gains a benefit of your choice as long as the stone is in the creature's possession. When you create the stone, choose one of the following benefits. 60 feet of dark vision, 10 feet increased speed while the creature is unencumbered, proficiency in constitution saving throws, resistance to acid, cold, fire, lightning, or thunder damage, your choice when you choose the benefit. Each time you cast a transmutation spell of first level or higher, you can change the effect of the stone if the stone is on your person. If you create a new transmuter stone, the previous one ceases to function. So that was a lot of words. But in general, you can spend eight hours to create an effect for yourself or share with an ally. So this is one of those other few ways to get dark vision to a creature that doesn't have it. Not to mention the fact that depending on the situation your party is in, let's say it's you know, a half-elf wizard in question. So they have dark vision, but they could use their transmuter's stone and give it to an ally for a while to let them have dark vision if you have a human in the party who couldn't normally see. So that extra ability, either speed, constitution saving throws, or a damage resistance, or that dark vision for yourself or someone else in the party is a very nicely flexible ability. Then at level 10, they gain the Polymorph spell and also gain the ability to cast Polymorph on yourself with a short or long rest recharge without norm without using a spell slot. So this is a very, very good way for a wizard to get an ability very similar to a druid's wild shape. Uh, they are limited to a beast of challenge rating one or lower, but that ability can very much help a wizard either, you know, turn into a bear for a while to have some fun in combat, or they could use it to turn into something sneaky or that can fly quickly. It is a nice, flexible ability. And finally, Master Transmuter. So this le ability at level 14 is actually one of those world changers that I do talk about every so often. Starting at level 14, you can use your action to consume the transmutation magic stored in your transmuter's stone. When you do so, choose one of the following effects. Your stone is destroyed and can't be remade until you finish a long rest. So this one is a hard limit of one a day, but for good reason. The abilities in question. Major Transformation. You can transmute one non-magical object no larger than a five-foot cube into another non-magical object of similar size and mass and of equal or lesser value. You must spend 10 minutes handling the object to transform it. So that's amazing. A flat-out transformation. So you can use that to very, very easily just create 
objects that are useful to the party. That's awesome. That's just the first one. Second one, panacea. You remove all curses, diseases, and poisons affecting a creature that you touch with the transmuter's stone. The creature also regains all its hit points. That's amazing. This gives a wizard a cure-all, a literal panacea. That is an aptly named ability, and that is fantastic. Next up, restore life. You cast the raised dead spell on a creature you touch with the transmuter stone without expending a spell slot or needing to have the spell in your spell book. Holy shit, that gives a wizard the ability to just raise the dead, something normally restricted to the more divine classes. And finally, and I would argue this is the one in particular that I say is a world changer, restore youth. You touch the stone to a willing creature, and that creature's apparent age is reduced by 3d10 years to a minimum of 13 years. The effect does not extend the creature's lifespan, however. Why is that not talked about more? That is the kind of thing that everyone should know is a thing in D&D. The fact that there is magic to restore youth to a person. While it's true that last sentence, that it does not extend the lifespan, is important. That doesn't change the fact that if you have people in the world that maintain the physicality of their prime years, that changes things because then you have people with the wisdom of time but the body and power of their youth that has dynamic changes to the world and should be known (laughs) all right final one war mage so this one teaches a bit more defense to well, be a war wizard. It's kind of what it says on the tin. But it has some pretty nifty abilities, though. When you are hit by an attack or fail a saving throw, you can use your reaction to get a plus two to your AC against an attack or a plus four bonus to a saving throw. However, you then cannot cast spells other than cantrips until the end of your next turn. So that is Another really cool ability that is kind of underappreciated, I would say. So using your reaction is rather difficult. So while it's true that the shield spell is better, that costs a spell slot. This ability does not. It just uses your reaction and gives you a bonus. And considering that it also gives you a bonus to a potential saving throw, that's fantastic. While it's true that it does block you from casting the higher damage abilities, well... That's a decent trade-off. Also at second level, they get a bonus to initiative equal to their intelligence modifier. There really aren't that many abilities that grant an initiative boost. So the fact that this does, and with their primary stat at that, is pretty nifty. So their sixth level ability is kind of an odd one. Power Surge. You can store a number of power surges equal to your intelligence modifier. Uh, When you finish a long rest, though, it resets to one. 
Uh, whenever you successfully end a spell with Dispel Magic or Counterspell, you gain one surge as you steal magic from the spell you foiled. If you end a short rest with no surges, you gain one. Once per turn, you deal damage to a creature or object with a wizard spell. You can spend a surge to deal extra force damage equal to that target of half your wizard level. So whenever you finish a rest, you have one, and then you gain an additional one each time you dispel or counter something. So generally speaking, you will usually only have one of these available. However, that still means that once per short rest, you would deal extra damage equal to half your wizard level. Potentially useful, but a somewhat complicated ability, however. Anyway, durable magic at level 10. While you maintain concentration on a spell, you have a plus two bonus to AC and all saving throws. That's cool. And finally, Deflecting Shroud at 14. When you use Arcane Deflection, you can cause magic to arc away from you, uh, to arc from you. Up to three creatures of your choice uh, within 60 feet take force damage equal to half your wizard level. So, pretty nifty. And that's all of them, finally. So... In summation, wizards are truly the classic magic-using class, and for good reason. They have the most spells at their disposal, as well as a number of subclasses that allow you to use that magic in fun, creative ways. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rifts and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tiers start as low as a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, where we'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs, A-N-D, rules, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.